Rusty Quill presents. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, guys. If you like this intermission, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash woe underscore begone. When we reach our $100 per month goal, The Diary of Eliza Schultz will become a twice-monthly Patreon-exclusive series. Enjoy. The Diary of Eliza Schultz, Raphael Muslani, and the Largest Cat in the World. He has a cat on a leash. The largest cat in the world, according to him. It attacks who he tells it to attack. That's rare for a cat. I had never heard of such a thing before reading about him. He does not exercise this power with caution. Many have gotten injured when he takes his cat out for a walk. It's not that bad, mostly. It's the largest cat in the world, but by that I mean the largest domesticated house cat. It's still just a cat. It can claw and scratch and bite, but only with small claws and small teeth. It can't be that hard to fight it off. I guess I'm still young and spry enough to not have to worry about these things, as old and decrepit as I might convince myself that I am sometimes. He wrote all of those books, you know, airport novels, just the ones that say Raphael Muslani on the cover. I don't know why people read them. Don't people play games on their phone or something on the plane these days? Why read a book? Why not bring a book from home? The halftime sequence is getting a movie so many people bought it in an airport. Getting a movie or lost in development hell. It's been a while since they've announced the project and they haven't announced casting yet. It's been a decade of a year though. Things happen or, more importantly, haven't been happening. I'm sure someone is still working on it. The halftime sequence isn't even Muslani's worst book. I'm embarrassed to know so much about his books. Reading trash novels is like picking at a canker sore in your mouth. You know that you're only causing yourself pain and making things worse, but it feels like a relief to feel that brief shock of pain compared to the lingering soreness. The halftime sequence is a fine book to read on a plane. I just get hung up on the time travel aspects of it all. In my opinion, there aren't any good stories about time travel. Some poor concept always gets left holding the bag. No explanation of the physics or the chain of events can bear the brunt of the weight of an author who needs it to justify all of his creative decisions. The halftime sequence just isn't any different. Time travel in the novel amounts to magic. People can either time travel or they can't. There isn't any science involved. This isn't a science fiction novel. 
This lack of science fiction eloquently steps around having to know anything about math or time or anything, really. But personally, it takes me out of it a little bit. I'm old enough to have seen all of magic debunked in my time. Fortune tellers who are never able to predict that they are about to get exposed on live TV. It's petty, but the lack of science makes me feel like I'm not invited. This story clearly isn't about me. These people live in a magical world and I don't. And even then, most of those people aren't magical either. People just don't have time for science fiction when they're 30,000 feet above the ground. The story follows Oscar Kelvin Price as he leaves his apartment one day, only to see that he has stepped out the door into rural America in January 1929. This is obviously a precarious time to be in America, since the Great Depression is right around the corner. After weeks of trying to figure out how he made the jump in the first place, and trying in vain to find other people like him, and nearly getting arrested in the process, he changes his focus to trying to do everything that he can to prevent the Great Depression. Unfortunately for Oscar, he doesn't have enough historical knowledge of how it all happened, or economic knowledge to know what should have been done differently. He flops through 1929 in vain, trying with all his might to prevent the history that he knows he will have to live through, with all of its brutal poverty and lack of modern amenities. In July of 1929, right before the stock market crash, he meets a woman named Olivia at the library. Something seems off about her, but off in the same way that he seems off living in 1929. They become close friends and then quickly lovers. One day, as she is showering in the other room, he notices a quarter that had fallen out of her purse. When he picks it up, he notices that the date on the quarter is 2053. Surprised by this, he confronts her about it. Before she can say anything and before he can finish explaining that he was also from the future, Olivia grabs him by the arm. Things go black for a split second and then they're standing together in a new apartment building, built where the old apartment building was in 1929, 124 years later. This is where Muslani loses me. 2053 is boring. I appreciate that it isn't all chrome and retrofuturism, which is somehow something that people are still doing these days, but it isn't interesting either. He fails to predict even the most basic quality of life upgrades or changes in politics or geography. It is written as though history had already ended. Nothing new can happen. There's still 50 states. The countries are all the same. The way people talk is the same. Why invent a future where everything is the same? Because the story isn't about time travel, it's about Oscar and Olivia. I find it hard to care about their interpersonal drama while the time-space continuum is warping dramatically in the background. They couldn't look any smaller on the stage. My eyesight is barely good enough to see them. And of course it turns out that Olivia was a traitor this whole time. It turns out that in one timeline Oscar actually did fix the Great Depression, and Olivia was sent by the Russian government back in time in order to stop him and hurt America. She's not evil with a capital E, she explains, but they have her sister held captive. She has no choice. She really does love Oscar. She was ordered to kill him and opted to bring him to the future instead. The chain of events happened the same way, as far as she could tell. He was prevented from stopping the Great Depression. The two of them hatch a plan to use her time travel capabilities to bust her sister out of a Russian prison. It's suspenseful, but of course everything works out and they live happily ever after. There's a funny throwaway line at the end about how Dwayne The Rock Johnson was America's 43rd president, showing that the effects of time travel had not been fully sussed out by our protagonists. The end. Plenty of potential left to open some sequel or movie or spin-off or audio drama to pick up and run with. It's contrived. The story's been told a thousand times before, right down to the Red Scare stuff thrown in for good measure. I don't get it. Why would you spend so much time writing a boring story when you have the largest cat in the world? Surely that's more interesting. I thought about the cat the whole time I was reading the novel. I would write about the cat instead of time travel. You wouldn't be able to get me to write about anything other than the largest cat in the world if it were me who owned it. What is it like? 
what would it say about me if I had the largest cat in the world? What am I like if I'm the one who owns the largest cat in the world? I forgot the ending of the halftime sequence by the time I got off the plane. Rafael Muslani has a cat on a leash. The longest leash in the world, according to him. He's sitting in his house by the fire with a good book, a book much better than any that he could have written, or even wants to write. When he reads this book, he does not aspire to write this book. It's a confidence that I can never know. The longest leash in the world extends out of his doorway, miles and miles, into the center of a dark street dimly lit by streetlights. It has been raining, but it is no longer raining. At the end of the longest leash in the world is the largest cat in the world, according to him. It is staring down the street, seemingly angry at some indiscretion that no one has truly perpetrated against it. Rage with animal clarity. I am standing in the street, opposite the largest cat in the world. I am what the largest cat in the world is facing, seemingly angry at some indiscretion that I could have not possibly perpetrated against it. This was the first time I had ever seen the cat. There was no time in which I could have antagonized it. There isn't a version of me that exists before reading the halftime sequence by Rafael Muslani on the plane and forgetting it by the time I got off the plane. There isn't a version of me that exists between getting off the plane and confronting the cat. There is nothing that I could have done because there wasn't any time to do it in. It would be like folding the earth over on itself to travel between California and New York in a single step, and then an ant in Nebraska accusing you of stepping on it. There was no way to step on it. John Vylant wrote a non-fiction book about a Siberian tiger, the claws of which he described as a hybrid of stiletto and meat hook. It's the most beautiful description of an animal ever put to paper. I should have read it again instead of the halftime sequence. This cat's stiletto meat hooks were considerably smaller, but they were the stiletto meat hooks that were coming toward me, which made them infinitely more threatening than the four-inch claws of a hypothetical Siberian tiger. I didn't run. The world didn't exist behind me, and the cat nimbly speeding towards me offered no way past it without a swipe. I stood in the street and looked at the diffused reflection of the cat, the apartment buildings, and the streetlight on the still wet ground. The cat got within striking distance of me and pounced. I stood still. The cat hit the end of its leash. The elasticity of the leash gave it another few inches of distance as it leapt at me. Its face was inches away from my face. It never offered any look other than grim determination. Still, it did not strike out at me with its stiletto meat hooks. The leash snapped the cat back, away from me, with force disproportional to the force that the cat had put on the leash in the first place. It disappeared into the night, pulled by the tether that connected it to Raphael Muslani, author of the halftime sequence. The cat was not free, after all. It was attached to the longest leash in the world. The category of the largest cat in the world isn't a prestigious one, but rather one that has been narrowed down by human perspective. Siberian tigers are cats, and they are larger than the largest cat in the world, but nobody cares. Their size is commendable, but not a common point of discussion. The largest cat in the world matters because of its ownership and the ownership of all other domestic cats. Without Rafael Muslani, the largest cat in the world would be a cat that was large based on its genetic expectations, but too small to fend off whatever large beast in the forest felt like attacking it in the middle of the night. The title is proof of ownership. I don't know where I'll go now that the cat is gone. There isn't anything behind me. There could be something in front of me. I could walk down the wet road. I could get on a plane and read another trashy airport novel. I could track down Rafael Muslani and ask him why he lets his cat roam so far from his house. I don't get to decide, and I don't get to know until I'm already doing it. There isn't any time between now and the next event. The halftime sequence.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.